Well, welcome to another edition of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. My name is Mark Powell, and my special guest with me today is Dr. Reverend Dr. Paul Cooper. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Mark. Now, you really need no introduction because most people in the church know you, but I have a list here. This is going to sound, unfortunately, like a eulogy, okay? But let me just <laughs> run through some of the highlights of your ministry because, you know, you've been around a long time and you've done a lot. Right. Here's just some of the things. Um, not only do you have a bachelor's degree in science, in geology, uh, also uh, an honours degree uh, in a Bachelor of Divinity, uh, Masters of Theology, and a PhD uh, in Church History, Doctor of Philosophy, Right, uh, numerous publications. Um, you've been the convener of TEC, Theological Education, Presbyterian Aged Care, trustee of the church, social sciences committee convener, um, Ad hoc committees for Korean ministry, eldership, Scots College Council, historical records and committee. That must have been exciting. It was. <laughs> um, and uh, sorry, I shouldn't uh, just be disparaging there. Ministry and mission committee, uh, member of the media committee. The list goes on and on, uh, as well as numerous committees on the GA of A. You've been an elder as well as a minister. You've been a theological lecturer. Um, uh, and I've noticed here, most important of all, you're married to Megan and you have four children. Indeed. Most importantly, none of that would I have been able to do without Megan's continual support and sacrifice. Um, she's been a great blessing. So let me just ask you on this. Philip Jensen said many years ago, I'll never forget, he said, be careful who you marry because you'll either double your ministry or halve it. What's your response to that statement? Uh, well, in my case, I think she quadrupled it rather than doubled it. Um, certainly true. I think um, that a, a wife uh, in ministry is uh, enormous support and blessing. And the other side of the coin is true as well, unfortunately. So I've never asked you this, and I hope not to embarrass your wife, but what do you reckon it is about your wife that has been such a blessing to you and your ministry? Uh, she's more godly than I am to start with. Um, she's very sacrificial in what she does. Um, we have a joke about my PhD in the family, and the joke is that Dad has the P and Mum has the HD, <laughs> which is true as well. She's very uh, gifted in her own right, uh, very precise in what she does and very yeah. careful, um, very creative person, um, and she loves me. Yeah. Now, you've done it all, right? You've been involved in every committee. I mean, you've also seen the church through one of the most tumultuous times, the seismic shift that was church union, mm. right? What do, you, what do you see as the difference between the church you grew up in? Because you were a member of Burwood Presbyterian Church. Yes. Right? What is it like to, from, from when you were a boy to now? Well, when I was a boy growing up in the church, I don't think I heard the gospel. If I did hear it, I certainly didn't respond to it. Mm. Uh, I don't think there was a clear call about the grace of God, a clear call of the gospel. I think uh, the Bible wasn't treated with the respect that it deserves to be treated, treated with. Um, I think that's the main difference to me, is the position of the Bible mm. uh, in the Presbyterian Church. 
after union, gradually growing in commitment um, that makes all the difference. Now, I'm feeling, I'm going to make you feel really old now because <laughs> I was saying to you before we started recording that uh, I remember so many of the things that you used to say to me when you taught me uh, <laughs> as a young whippersnapper uh, going through uh, the Presbyterian College here in Sydney. I call these Cooperisms, by the way. And one of the things you, you often would say is in your day, there were more people at church, but there were less Christians. Is that, is that still a good summary, do you think? Uh, certainly there were more people, I think. Yes, I think that's still true. I, I think that reflecting my own background, um, our family expressed cultural Christianity, cultural Presbyterianism that I grew up. I mean, I grew up in the church, uh, went to Sunday school, yeah. um, PFA, mm. etc. Uh, my parents uh, had my brother and I baptised and they took the view that seeing they'd taken on that responsibility, they should go to church as well, so they did. My father became an elder in the church. Um, and so I, I was a product of cultural Christianity till I went to university. And then when I was at university, there was all this challenge about uh, my inherited Christian values. Would I keep them? Would I get rid of them? I had to think about that. Mm. And the other thing was that Vietnam was in the air. My number would go in the barrel and there's nothing like a whiff of death to make you think clearly about the future uh, and so i was had to rethink where i stood with respect to this thing called christianity that i culturally accepted so was it at, was it at uni that you became a christian it was in my second year at university uh, i was in a geology class and a fellow came and sat next to me his name was uh, john woodhouse <laughs> and uh, we got chatting and became friends, and he invited me off to Bible study. I went to a Bible study with John Chapman, doing Romans, blew me out of the water completely. And it's really it's the beginning of the process, really there. Um, and I eventually went forward to Billy Graham crusade in 69, I think it was, but I'd made the decision before then. Wow. So here you are going through college, university, I should say, and you've got John Woodhouse on one side, John Chapman on the other. I mean, us Presbyterians would go, it's all predestined, Paul. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> no argument from me there. Yeah. Now, you've had particular personal challenges of late. Mm -hmm. um, you've been diagnosed with Parkinson's, yep. which meant that you've had to give up pastoral ministry, and yet you've been more active than ever. In writing, can you just talk us through, um, if it's okay, what has is, what is that meant for you and your own identity, having to give up that ministerial role of being a pastor? Well, I think it's, it's shown me some important lessons that my identity is not defined by my work as a pastor, um, yeah. as someone who's been very heavily involved in uh, various aspects of the Presbyterian Church. As you've said, not too much I haven't had a involvement in, finger in most pies. Absolutely. Um, Is there a pie you haven't had a finger in? That's my question. Possibly not. <laughs> and uh, you are taught very quickly with Parkinson's that, um, that uh, who you are uh, needs to change. Uh, because you can't cope like you used to be able to cope. And I, I came to the conclusion that 
I'm not defined by that role of ministry, so I uh, resigned from my parish uh, and looked for other opportunities for ministry, mm. uh, principally in pursuit of history. Mm. Um, I serve as a secretary of the Evangelical History Association to mm. try to organise academics to write history. Which and is publish excellent. It. Yeah. Um, That's a much neglected area in Australia, isn't it? The history it, it of evangelicalism is, yes. and its impact. Yes, it is indeed. Um, and also in book publishing, helping people publish their books. Mm. Uh, Christian people publish their books to self-publish. Um, I, one of the big impacts of, uh, of having Parkinson's is... As we say in our household, Dad doesn't have Parkinson's, we have Parkinson's. Mm. So uh, my wife bears a fair burden mm. as a result of this. Um, being woken up at 3am most mornings is a bit of a problem. So, mm. <laughs> um, so there are changes that need to take place, but um, I'm enjoying it. I, I always have taken the point of view to enjoy what I'm doing at the time. Mm. When I stop enjoying it, I stop doing it. Um, mm. So uh, I, I hope I'm being useful. And mm. so um, that's I, principally what I've learned. I so let's drill down on a couple of these more recent publications, right? <laughs> yes. Um, because, you know, in some ways, th these are pretty significant. Like, first of all, uh, one of your publications, Burning or Bushed, yes. uh, you've been involved in, really a history of the, the Presbyterian Church. Paul. Are we burning or are we bushed um, as a denomination? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a, a book about 40 years since Church Union. Um, my view is that uh, we are burning rather than bushed. I, I don't think we're bushed. I, I, at the time of Church Union, it was widely predicted that we wouldn't last 10 years. Really? Uh, but uh, that's proved to be wrong. God, I don't think, is finished with the Presbyterian Church. Mm. Clearly isn't. And it has a valuable contribution to make to Christian ministry within Australia. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm very positive about it. Of course, we've got problems like everybody has problems. Uh, we're not perfect. Um, Come on, let's be controversial. <clears throat> what are our problems, Paul? You're the <laughs> elder statesman. You can say this. There's, a, there's, a, there's an old saying in the country, right? You can come in as a blow-in, right? You can blow in, blow up and blow out. <laughs> now, I'm not necessarily saying blow up, but as really, you are an elder statesman in the church. You've been around a long time, right? What do you think are our significant, most significant challenges as a church? Well, the significant challenges are the same as have always been, to be faithful mm -hmm. in the circumstances in which you find yourself. Uh, I'm very aware that um, the, the trouble with being an elder statesman is that things change. Mm -hmm. And when I went out into ministry in 1977 uh, to a small country community, uh, even though I was very young, I was a respected member of that community because I was the minister. And I was the Presbyterian minister, what's more, yeah. more respected, more respectable. Uh, that's not true of anyone who exits to that same parish today, I'm sure. Yeah. So the attitudes in the community have changed greatly towards... Uh, ministers yeah. and towards ministry, towards Christianity. We've uh, gone from being something which is um, part of our cultural heritage, it's good for the kids, we'll send them along to Sunday school, to, well, isn't this Christian faith really 
unhelpful, uh, evil even. Mm. So, I mean, I think it's much tougher in ministry today. So reflections of elder statesmen need to be made with great care. Mm. Context has changed. Yeah, very wise, I think. Um, There's different challenges, isn't there, in every generation uh, as in terms of what it means to be faithful. Yeah. Um, Another book you've written uh, is on the declaratory statement. Edited. Well, okay, sorry, edited, sorry. Um, It's just that I see you at the GA of A, you know, flogging this book, right? And I'm thinking, (laughs) oh, you must have wrote it. But um, you're just very passionate about it. Why be passionate about the declaratory statement, Paul? Why do we need a book on that? Every church needs clarity with respect to what it believes. Uh, Otherwise, you spend your time arguing about things that you shouldn't be arguing about. You need to have clarity as to where you stand doctrinally. And the declaratory statement is part of the process of stating where we stand doctrinally on major issues um, in terms of our theology. And so uh, it's really important for uh, office bearers, ministers and elders who actually take a vow to uphold our Presbyterian standards that they understand them. How can you vow to uphold your standards if you don't understand them? Okay. So can I just push back a little bit on this, right? Not that I'm going to challenge you here. I I just, for clarity's sake, right? I've heard in my 20-odd years of being a minister the declaratory statement used to justify everything from uh, not believing in the Lord's Day to the role of the Lord to creationism to even infant baptism. What does the declaratory statement actually cover? Well, that's why you write a book uh, and you organise for other people to contribute to a book in numerous chapters to address know, some us, of these issues. Give us, the, give, it, give us the book in a nutshell. Uh, the book in a nutshell? Uh, can't do that. <laughs> um, I, I would say that like every issue of interpretation, mm. you need to understand the background and the history of the document which gave rise to it. Mm. You cannot read it just without a context. Mm. Part of what uh, Read in the Light, the book does, is to give context, okay. which helps understanding, which then disqualifies uh, some views as to what it does and does not now do. Now you've got me intrigued. Okay, Mr. Historian, what is the, what is the context? Well, the context were uh, con- context stretches back over the 19th century, starting principally in Victoria with their declaratory statements that they had, responding to uh, the ministry of Charles Strong, who basically um, took the point of view that you could treat the Bible as like an oyster shell, of which hidden somewhere in there was a pearl. Mm. So you just throw away the oyster shell and just take out the pearl. Uh, so you can get rid of a lot of the Bible and what it teaches. You just need the essence. Just keep the golden rule. Yeah, that's well, yeah, something like that. Mm. Uh, so from that, uh, the Victorian Church responded uh, with a declaratory statement, uh, in indicating that you you can't do that sort of thing to the Presbyterian Church's standards. Interesting. Uh, and it continues on from there i think um that's so it's really a response to liberalism it is a response to liberalism it's a response in my view to uh 
a misunderstanding of the Westminster Confession. Uh, it is in response uh, to giving a degree of freedom with respect to how one holds the Westminster Confession, that's true, but largely it's a document which is directed towards um, holding the truths of the Confession. Okay. But read the book, Mark. Yeah, but it, it's ironic, isn't it? I mean, the, the Church of Australia put that in there. And yet liberalism swept through us as a denomination, didn't it? Mm. It white-anted us theologically. Well, documents, documents don't preserve uh, your theological integrity. Action does. And an unwillingness to enforce your standards, an unwillingness to discipline, mm. an unwillingness to require people to hold their ordination vows mm. is the reason why, uh, in the end, didn't uh, preserve the church from much declension mm. um, so uh, but it was there as part of our constitution mm. so that when church union happened in 1977 we could look back and say this is a constitutional document this defines what we should be not what we've become so it was very helpful in that regard uh, very helpful that's what mm. uh, doctrinal statements are meant to do mm. but you've got to use them mm. Okay, let me change track a bit now because I know another thing, another work that you um, put a lot of effort into um, is, uh, I guess you call it a biography, on Goodlett, yep. uh, one of the great benefactors here in New South Wales. He's a member at Ashfield Presbyterian Church, really just down the road from where we're sitting. Um, but also I was at PLC Pimble the, um, a little while ago for one of my children's sporting matches and I saw Goodlett Hall. Um, Goodlett House, I think. Oh, Goodlett House. Yeah. Sorry, you're right. Um, this man was everywhere. I, I take it he was one of the wealthiest men in Australia at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Um, John Goodlett. Uh, really, the story is about John Goodlett and his wife Anne, mm. uh, and they are both really, really important. Mm. And one of the things I found out whilst doing the study was the importance of Anne. Um, so it's another I, Megan, you could say. I, I, yeah, <laughs> very much so. I think it's fairly typical that the wives don't get much of a run, mm. uh, and certainly she hadn't got much of a run historically. Well, okay. Goodlett, Goodlett hadn't either, but uh, hers was less of a run than his. Uh, he came to Australia from Scotland uh, in the 1850s. He came to Sydney and set up a, uh, a Bunnings of the day, as it were, mm. and he, frankly, he made a fortune in the building boom. Uh, Mm. He was uh, a devout Presbyterian, mm. very um, benevolently minded, and as was Anne. And so uh, they decided um, they didn't have children, didn't have any children, mm. and they decided uh, that with their wealth they would give it away, not waiting for the end of their lives to That's give it away, they'd give it away thing. progressively. Mm. But more than that, they gave their lives to lots and lots of different benevolent activities. Mm. Uh, they didn't just simply write a cheque. They got involved as secretary or mm. as president and were Okay, assiduous. so what were some of those, Paul? Oh, well, in terms of the Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Ladies College, Sydney. Okay. The reason why uh, Goodlett House is at Pimble is because Goodlett negotiated to buy the land um, of uh, Pimble Ladies wow. College, which was Presbyterian Ladies College. Uh, that property is massive. But wow. he virtually had nothing to do with that particular school. Okay. It was PLC Sydney, that okay. where it was. Oh, right. Which is where it all started from. 
Right. Um, oh, PLC Sydney was the yep. first. Yep. And then it went out from there. Yes, yes. Which makes sense because he was worshipping down the road. Yeah, mm. that's right. Um, he was uh, a founder of the Sydney City Mission. Oh, was he? Uh, he was very early on a member of the AMP and twice chairman of AMP. Uh, he was uh, very much involved in the Deaf, Dumb and Blind Institute, or the Royal, Royal Institute for Deaf and, Deaf and Blind Children, as it's called our days. Mm. Uh, he was, with his wife, really involved in the Sydney Female Refuge, which was an mm. organisation for rescuing prostitutes and providing with them some shelter and, and help and assistance. Uh, and there weren't many uh, philanthropic pies that he didn't have his fingers in mm. or, or she didn't, wasn't involved in uh, across Sydney. Um, they were motivated uh, principally by their Christian faith. Mm. Um, but they were uh, they were doers, not writers, mm. and therefore they don't leave too many written records, but mm. they leave a great legacy of activity. So th- th- I want to ask you about that. What do you think are the lessons for us today? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this right now, thinking I'm exactly that. I'm not a writer. I'm not a speaker. But they're doers, mm. and the Lord has blessed them with wealth. What lessons can we learn about philanthropic giving wisely while we're still alive? Well, I'm always careful about drawing lessons from history because context is important. Mm. If you go back to the 19th century, um, the government wasn't actively involved a great deal in providing for the needs of, of society and therefore Christians formed all these particular societal groups to handle particular problems. Interesting. So mm-hmm. Christians were very much involved mm-hmm. in a lot of these um, welfare-type activities. Mm. Progressively, as of course history has gone, they've been taken over by government services, mm. and therefore uh, that context has changed significantly. So I, I think uh, in the 19th century they had a very clear understanding of the relationship of the gospel of grace, with the need to be involved in giving mercy. Mm-hmm. And that um, they didn't polarise on that, those issues, that uh, it was either one or the other, it was both and. And you find that constantly in their ministries. Mm. They're keen to communicate the gospel of the life, death and resurrection of Christ, but they're also keen to give assistance. Mm. Um, um, they basically got involved. That was what they did, how they did it. They, they just rolled up their sleeves, saw a need and tried, to, uh, and tried to meet it. More difficult nowadays because uh, so many of our needs are covered by various mm. organisations, uh, various government. Mm. You know, we have pensions and things they didn't have mm. in those days, uh, allowances. Uh, but there are still needs. And mm. I think one of the lessons is that the Christian church should be looking for those at the absolute margins Mm. that are neglected by the system, if I can put it that way. Mm. Uh, It was one of the reasons why the Presbyterian Church got involved in the Alawa Children's Home, Mm. or Children's Hospital, it's not a home, Children's Hospital, it was because he Mm. was a group that uh, was basically not being given the attention that they deserved. Mm. And the thing about Christian ministry is when it's successful, what happens is that over time the church is no longer needed to be there mm. uh, so that we move on to something else. So a lot of these organisations in the past were Christian, 
uh, have lost their Christian mm. ethos over time. I think that's something you need to watch very carefully. Yeah. Um, so. so one final question, if I can switch tracks, because, yep. you know, in this latter season, I won't, I won't say your last, <laughs> but in this latter season, current season, um, you've been very much into publishing and writing. Um, you also oversee Ida Books. Um, you're very passionate about history. Um, for the people, young people, middle-aged people, um, out there, older people, who want to write, who even think I've got, they've got a book in them, what guidance, encouragement would you give them? Uh, in order to write, mm. you need to write. Mm. Start. Um, that's my advice. Mm. Uh, and commit it to paper. Yeah. And it is only in the act of writing that you actually create your book. Mm. You can think about it till the cows come home, mm. but you need to write. Mm. Uh, and get something down, and then you can begin to work on it. Okay, so you, I'm going to give you a plug here. As um, the person that oversees Ida Books, are you looking for new authors? Like if people are to contact you and say, hey, Paul, I, I've got an idea. Um, can you provide mentoring and, and, and help? Well, we certainly have in uh, with various authors who would submit work to us and uh, say, can you help us with this? Or mm. what do you think of this? Give us an opinion. Mm. Um, can you make some suggestions? We certainly have done that. Mm. Sometimes that uh, produces a book. Um, mm. And I mean, basically, the whole role of Ida Books is to help people self-publish. Yeah, we're, we're not a publisher in a traditional sense where yeah. we pay for a book and bear the financial burden of it and then promote it and distribute it. No, no, we, we help an author publish their own book mm. and provide the services that are needed. To and then it's that. up to them to market it. Up to them to market it. Uh, and they, they uh, do that quite well, I think. And mm. um, we've had a number of quite successful books, I think, mm. uh, in recent times. Um, Great. Who knows how long this will go on for, but we just keep publishing when we need to. Mm. All right. I'm going to have the last question. Very last question. What final words? If you, could, if you could be remembered for saying one thing to the church, you know, you, um, and you had that opportunity to speak to the whole church about an exhortation and encouragement, what would you say? Mm, my goodness. Um, a question without notice. That's right. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> We're not in assembly. What would I say uh, if I wanted to be remembered for one thing? No, not if you wanted to be remembered. What we need to hear. Oh, what we need to hear. Mm. Well, that's much more important than what mm. I would be remembered for. Um, we need to hear that uh, God is faithful, that God loves us, that God sent his son into the world to die on the cross, to be raised on the third day for our justification. Mm. And we need to put our faith and trust not in our own works, but in his. Mm. That's Amen. what we need to hear. And we need to respond to that constantly each day. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Thank uh, you. We'll give the COVID way. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, it's been great. Um, Great to share. Can we do it again? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. We'll get you back. It'll be really good. Um, well, this has been Mark Powell with um, Reverend Dr. Paul Cooper. 
Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of AP's Profiles in Christian Living. I hope to see you next time and hopefully we'll have Paul again next time and uh, in the future and uh, we'll do it again. Thanks very much.